So, as we have done, so shall we do again uh, with the New City Catechism. I'm going to read the question, and you all will read the answer with me. So, question 25. Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? Answer. Yes, because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin. God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own, and we'll remember our sins no more. You know, like for unbelievers or lost people, they have this thing, you know, can God forgive me? I have done so much. Can God forgive me? And as believers, we say, you know what, man, I really messed up this time. I have done so many things wrong. And it reminds me of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where the high priest would enter in, and everybody in the host of Israel is waiting, say, will he come out? Will he come out? Because if he messes up in there, making atonement for our sins, then we have no hope. And so Jesus came out of the grave, proving that his sacrifice was so acceptable to God. He was perfect. And so when we look, when we mess up, when we have sins, or when we're talking to someone who has sins, then we look and we say, Christ's resurrection proves that we can be forgiven because God fully and perfectly accepted his sacrifice for all time. And that is why we are here today to gather together and proclaim that excellency of Christ, that he was perfect and that God has fully and perfectly accepted his sacrifice. And so join me in prayer as we pray for that and we glorify God. Oh, Father, you are good and you are kind. Lord, you have shown your love to us in that you have sent Christ to die for us. You have sent Christ to fully pay for our sins, Lord, and to give us the righteousness that we could never earn and don't deserve, Lord. But you graciously, as it said in the catechism, bestow or impute Christ's righteousness to us, Lord. And that is only, that is only possible because Christ so fully paid the price for our sins. He so fully atoned for our sins that we can come to you boldly. The throne of grace, we can come before it, Lord. The grace that is greater than all of our sins, Lord. It is not by works. Lord, and today we celebrate Father's Day, Lord. And as a father, I can tell, I, I, can, I can confess, Lord, that I have failures that are too numerable and that I would not wish to count. But, Lord, I can look at them and I can see hope because you have paid for my sins. You have paid for my sins that I have committed against my wife and my children, my fellow man, my brothers, my sisters. Lord, you have paid for that. And you have given me a righteousness, Lord, that I will be conformed to increment by increment, Lord. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to rest in that grace, Lord to rest in the righteousness, to come before you boldly as our Father who loves us and who loves us because you have found us not guilty by Christ. Lord, you have given us good things. You have given us blessings upon blessings, Lord. Help us to understand what it means, God, to be forgiven, to be forgiven of our sins and to be counted righteous. Lord, help us to live not as people who have no hope, Lord, but people who have a hope in Christ, the hope of forgiveness and the hope of righteousness, both paid for by the blood of Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much for this day, for 
the fathers in the room, the mothers in the room, Lord, the children. We thank you so much for just all that you have given us, Lord. We pray for Kevin as he comes. Help us to understand your word. Open our hearts to it, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. And the three to fives can go with Brian and Christina Chisholm. Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from Amos 5. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. Amos 5, 18 through 24. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. <clears throat> Thanks, Hayden. And thanks, Michael. Um, in 2002, a guy named Jack Whitaker won the lottery. At the time, it was the largest, jackpo- largest jackpot any single ticket holder had ever won. It was $314 million. That can make some problems disappear, right? But in the end, uh, he would say that he wished he had just torn that ticket up. And you might wonder what happened that would make him say that. Well, after he won the lottery, he had a lot of weird things happen, weird and some sad things happen. One was, uh, one night he was at a bar, and his car was broken into, and more than $500,000 in cash was stolen. Now, somebody asked him the obvious question. Why do you have over $500,000 cash in your car? And you know what his answer was? Because I can. <laughs> That's why he had it in there. And if you'll believe it, not long after that, he had his car broken into again and had about $200,000 in cash stolen. Now, sadly, um, uh, over not, not too long after he won the lottery, his daughter and granddaughter uh, would die of drug overdose. And, and he would say that was because of the, the, the money. Uh, eventually, a casino would be suing him for, uh, for writing $1.5 million in bad checks. And, and not long after, and this all happened within the first five years of him, him winning all this money. And, and, and so only a few years after he, he got this, he won the lottery, he said this. He said, I just don't like Jack Whitaker. I don't like the hard heart I've got. I don't like what I'll become. I'll be honest. I think I could handle $314 million better than Joel Jack here. Now, and, and, and maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I wouldn't. I think I would. But, but here's what I don't know. I'm not sure if having more than $300 million would make me a better person. Actually, I, I kind of think if, if I were to come into possession of over $300 million, it would be a worse version of Kevin Shoemaker that you would get. And often money, success, achieving the good life 
can end up causing more harm than good. <clears throat> a real interesting proverb, uh, I've always thought this was interesting, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9 says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Isn't it interesting that he's praying just for what is needful? Because if I have too much, if I get full, I might end up denying you. And look, success and wealth are not bad, but they do make you uniquely vulnerable in some ways. In the same way that being poor makes you uniquely vulnerable to maybe stealing. Moses gives a similar warning in Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8, 11, he says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Verse 12, Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what would make the people forget the Lord, their God? To put it simply, an increase in income. An increase in income would make them vulnerable to forgetting their Lord. And, and the reason I bring all this up is because this was the issue in the days of Amos. The, the people of Israel are living during a time of peace and prosperity. Jeroboam II the, uh, is, the, is the king of Israel during this time. He's an evil, wicked king. But just the way the Lord providentially had it, it was a time of peace and prosperity. And while things are going really well for the people of Israel, they are neglecting and even oppressing the poor. And so, so the text I chose today to kind of try to get a whole idea of the, the passage or the book of, of Amos is 5, 18 to 24. And in, in case you didn't know, we're, this, this summer we're going through the, the 12 minor prophets, and we're going to try to cover a, a prophet every, every Sunday. Today we're in Amos. Uh, and I took the text, Amos 5, 18 to 24. That's actually one of the better known passages in Amos uh, because it's used in Martin Luther King's famous uh, I Have a Dream speech. Uh, and he referenced, he referenced 524 when he said this. He says, no, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And so this was a good book and a good text for Martin Luther King to quote from because Amos deals with people being oppressed. And so it applied to Israel in their day. It applied to the civil rights movement and it applies to us in our day. And, and, and while the, the message of Amos does apply to the civil rights movement, it also applies to much more than that. And, and I want to, to consider two themes that I think emerge throughout the book of Amos, uh, and especially so in our text that we're going to look at. The, the first theme is the day of the Lord, and the second is empty devotion. So first, the day of the Lord. So the, the people of Israel during this day, they would have thought of the day of the Lord as the day when, when God, when Yahweh takes vengeance on their enemies. And so, so we see this idea emerge in Deuteronomy chapter 32, says this, the Lord says, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time, their foot, their, for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. So when Israel thought about the day of the Lord, it was the good day. It was the day that, that the bad guys got it. And it was the day that, that their oppressors were, were defeated and they were again free. 
And so, so this is the way the people of Israel would have thought of the day of the Lord. It was, it was a good day. But look at what Amos says in Amos 5, 18 to 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went to the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? In other words, Amos is telling Israel, you're probably looking forward to the day of the Lord because that's the day when the Lord defeats your enemies. But what Amos is saying is like, actually the day of the Lord, as things currently stand, you are the enemy and God's hand will be against you. And they might think it won't happen. They think, well, we're God's special people. He called us. We know the story about coming out of Egypt. And so God's going to take care of us. We are his special people. He's put his mark on us. And people are going to know who Yahweh is by Israel. So he's going to keep us safe. And that's not what's going to happen. And actually, that being the case is the reason that he's especially going to punish them. In Amos 3.1, he says, the Lord says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. So he's saying, Israel, you are my special people. Another place it says, you are my child, Israel. And then he says, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So the reason that God is going to punish them is because in all the earth, Israel is the nation that God intimately knows. They're the one nation on the planet that he says, this is my child. So for example, let's say after church, we're all kind of hanging around. And there's a, a kid thinks it'd be funny to come up here and jump up and down on the piano, right? And so he's jumping up and down, and I'll probably tell him, hey, let's, let's hop down, right? That's if it's one of your kids. If it's one of my kids, it's probably not going to be words, right? He's probably going to land pretty hard off the piano, right? So, so it's different. So I'm going to respond differently to your child acting up than I will my child. My child's going to get a more intense correction than I would with you. And this is what's happening with the day of the Lord. It's going to be intense because Israel belongs to Yahweh. So Amos says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It'll be like running away from a lion only to meet a bear. And once you get to shelter, you get in the house, you lean your hand up against the wall and a snake bites you. What he is saying, it will be relentless. It will be one thing after another raining down on you. You are looking for the day of the Lord. You don't know that you're the enemy of God right now. And, and by the way, the day of the Lord did come on Israel when Assyria conquered them. We read about that in 2 Kings 17. That's another sermon for another day. But look, here's the problem with Israel, is that while they were in a season of peace and prosperity, they didn't use that peace and prosperity to bless others. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you that you might bless the nations. And instead, they allowed that season of peace and prosperity to make them worse, to make them greedy to the point of neglecting and even oppressing the poor. And, and God's blessing of peace on them, on them didn't make them advocate for those who were hurting, but rather it made them take advantage of those who were suffering. And this is what wealth, peace, and prosperity can do. Now, it, it could sound like today, that I'm just saying, look, people with money and who are successful and are doing well, those are the bad guys. That is not what the scriptures teach. No more to say that someone who's poor is always stealing. It's just that whether you're poor or whether you're wealthy, you are uniquely vulnerable to different brands of sin. And so 
with Israel being in a season of peace and prosperity, they were vulnerable to it. So look, if, if anyone here is in a season of wealth, peace, and prosperity, then praise the Lord. Be thankful for it. But just know that you are vulnerable in a unique way. Now, the day of the Lord isn't just something in the Old Testament. It, it, it makes its way. We, we see the day of the Lord repeated in the New Testament, but it does change categories a little bit because, like I said last week, we aren't Old Testament Israel. We are the New Testament church. We're not under the Old Covenant. We're under the New Covenant, and so things change. We aren't a group of people who God has miraculously put into a land, and he's made promises according to that land. We're a New Covenant people but we see some themes that move over from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, into the New Covenant and the New Testament. And one of these things is the day of the Lord. So in, in 2 Peter 3.10, we read, read this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the day of the Lord is going to come out of nowhere. And it's a day of... of uh, of the works being exposed. And I believe Jesus was referencing the day of the Lord in Revelation twenty two twelve when he said, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So on the day of the Lord, Jesus will come and there will be both punishment and reward. So, so the, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, there's, there's different themes the way it happened. There's, there's actually multiple days of the Lord, days of judgment, and in the New Testament, we look forward to this one ultimate day of the Lord. And it's the day that Jesus returns. And what we see is it's a day of punishment and rewards. In 1 Corinthians 3, so here's what I want to do. So with this idea of the day of the Lord and moving it into the New Testament, therefore moving it into our worlds, I want to consider two applications for us in regards to the day of the Lord as new covenant people. So first, uh, consider 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles or devices out. Go to 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. And like I said, I want to I mention two applications for us as we consider the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15 says this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So the day of the Lord, when the Christ returns, the quality of our work will be shown. Now, I should make clear, this has nothing to do with salvation. If you can see that last text says, though he himself will be saved. But instead, it's about rewards. On the day of the Lord, those not facing God's judgment will be rewarded for their work. Now, some people might think, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to, to um, maybe change your behavior, to serve God with the idea of trying to get rewards. That, that seems like a bad motive. It seems like you, instead you should do things for the, out of the love of God, love of other people, or for the glory of God, and, and that should, should be your, your motive. And in a sense, I'd agree. But if you're like me, you need all kinds of motives to do the right thing, right? And most days, I'm not operating at the highest level. And, I, and some days, I, wanna operate, I might operate on the, on the lowest level. So, so to speak of, if you think that speaking of, of rewards as motivations muddies things up, 
here's my question for you. Have you ever done it really anything out of, out of that good of a motive? I mean, isn't almost everything kind of mingled with sin and bad ideas? I mean, very rarely have we done the right thing, the right time, the right way with the right motivation. And so, and so if we wait to get the motivations perfect, we're, we're going to have a hard time doing almost anything because we can't get our inner life just perfect all the time. Imagine a parent asks their child to clean their room. Child cleans the room, comes back, and says, I have a confession to make. My motives were off. I cleaned my room because I thought I'd be in trouble if I didn't do it. Or I cleaned my room because you said if I did, we'd go get ice cream. And I just want to confess. In my, in my opinion, a good parent would be like, look, you're fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm just thrilled you cleaned the room. Like, you know, it'd be cool if you did it out of love for me and mom. But, hey, just so you don't get in trouble, we're good, <laughs> right? And so the, the, there's just a sense where a child is not fully developed and mature to have the highest and purest motives. And, and, the, and those highest and purest motives aren't even accessible to them, really. It's not, they're not even on their, on their radar. And so we give them all kinds of different incentives to do that. And look, the same is true with us. With remaining sin, there's not much I do that doesn't have some kind of selfishness or pride mingled into it. Uh, and, and not only do we not do what we should, but even when we do what we should, our motives aren't always just perfect, right? And so we have other things that make us work. I, I heard a story of, of a pastor, and he, he's driving in the car with his wife, and it's a rainy day, and, and they're driving down the road, and they see a, a homeless person who's pushing a cart. The homeless person slips, and, and the cart falls over. And, and the wife says something like, you know, you should go, you should go help him out. He's so frustrated because it's pouring down rain, and this guy can probably just get stuff back in his cart himself. It doesn't really need to do it. It's just so. Anyway, he's frustrated. So frustrated, he kind of pulls over and is kind of pouting, and he gets out and he slams the door, and he goes out, and the guy's just oh, it's all wet, and it's just rain pouring down on him, right? Just like the bottom fell out, and he's putting his stuff back in. He's kind of grumbling and kind of gets them all set and gets back in the car, slams the door, gets back in the car. His wife's crying, and then his wife looks at him and says, "That's the best sermon you've ever preached." She didn't know what was going on in his heart. Like in his heart, he was not doing well at all. He, he approached that with a, with a, with a bad motive. But here's, but here's the thing, is that he did the, the right thing. He did what was good and right. And I'm not saying that, that our motives don't matter. They, they do matter. But what I'm saying is, if we wait until our motives are just right, just perfect, then we're never going to do anything because our motives are always going to have some kind of stain or mingling of our sinful nature in it. Look, on good days, our motives are, I'm doing this for the glory of God. And, and for it gives me great joy to operate out of the glory of God. I want to love God, love people, and I love God by loving people and serving them. And, and look, sometimes we, we, we might not operate out of the highest motives. And I think one other thing that the Lord gives us is this, hey, look, you will be rewarded on the day. And so I don't think it's wrong to operate your life in a way that you look at the day. And there's things that you will or will not do today that will matter on the day. So I think it's right and good to operate in a sense where we are storing up treasure in heaven, where we are considering being rewarded on the day when Jesus gives out rewards. Now, a second application comes from Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 24 and 25 says this, Let us consider how to serve one another up to love and good works 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I need to be constantly stirred up to love and good works. And this happens with a few things happening by meeting together with the church and by, by being stirred up to love and good works as we see and are reminded of the day that is coming. Imagine you have a glass of milk. You put some chocolate syrup in there and it all goes to the bottom, right? And you need to stir it up to make it chocolate milk. And let's imagine you're weird and you let it sit for a week and it was still good. The, the, the syrup goes back down. It needs to be stirred up again. And so what I'm saying is, is that part of what we're doing right now is, is to remember there is a day where, where, where Christ will return and we will be rewarded. for our, We will give an account for our work. And part of meeting together right now is, is to somehow come out of the fog enough to see true reality, that, this, that, that all of reality is heading towards a day, the day where we will give an account of ourselves, we'll be rewarded. And so we want to be stirred up to love and good works. And we need this especially if we find ourselves in a season of peace and prosperity. Because like the proverb says, we are vulnerable to getting full and saying, who is the Lord? And look, generally speaking, we're going to forget about these things because all of us just have life. There's a million different things demanding our attention. And part of what we're doing here on Sunday is coming to meet together to reorient our lives towards the Lord and towards the day. Now, briefly, I want to consider empty devotion that, that Amos spoke about here too. Uh, so let's talk about empty devotion. In chapter 5, verse 21 through 24, we read this. The Lord says, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What does God hate? The type of devotion that is all talk and no action. That's all Sunday and no Monday through Saturday. A, a type of devotion that can kind of get boiled down to religious rituals. A person who never, go, who, who, who never misses church. They're there every Sunday, but just a monster to their family. The person who has really good theology. I mean, it's buttoned up tight. They only read dead people, right? They, I mean, they got the good old stuff, but they treat people they work with like trash. The person who treats the church like it's a product to be consumed rather than a family to serve. Empty devotion. We read in Hebrews that we should not neglect to meet together so we can stir one another up to love and good works. So the goal for Sunday of gathering together isn't just to meet together. It's to do stuff. It's to do stuff outside of here, to love people and to do good. And any form of worship that does not translate to action during the week isn't real worship. Worship cannot be put into a box of a time or a place. And when we do that, when we put worship into a, time, a box of a time or a place, God hates it. If our worship is done in a way 
that doesn't see justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, then we're doing it wrong. The way you treat people is a direct reflection of what you worship. So may we not neglect the habit of meeting together to worship our God because we need to be stirred up to love and good works. I need y'all to help me to do this. We, we need to help each other to do this. And we, and we need to set our minds not on yesterday, not even on today or tomorrow, but on the day. And while the day of the Lord will be terrifying for those who have not turned to Christ, it will not be terrifying to, for those who have. And it's not because we're so good. It's not because we did all the good stuff and, and people who didn't do, did bad stuff. It's because of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.8. You know what he said? This is why, this is why we, we don't have to be afraid of the day of the Lord if you are in Christ. God will sustain you to the end. And you know what it says about believers on the day of Christ? Guiltless. We're all guilty, but we will be declared guiltless on the day of Christ. As Michael was saying earlier in the catechism, our sin, look, the day of the Lord met Christ on the cross for us. The, the day of the Lord that we should fear, that happened at the cross. That was already absorbed for us. The righteousness has been given unto us. And so on the day of the Lord, we stand before our God guiltless because of the finished work of Christ. And look, to live a faithful life, full of love and good works, and to be declared guiltless on the day of Christ, nothing can beat that, not even winning the lottery. And look, with that in mind, maybe we all have it much better than we realize. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we read in Amos and later in Kings and other places when the day of the Lord struck people how terrifying it must have been. Your prophet Amos said it was relentless, like running from a lion to meet a bear, to be uh, bit by a snake, relentless. There have been some days and some times for probably all of us that have felt relentless, and they're unimaginable compared to your wrath. And Lord, you've given us a way of escape through your son, that we can find refuge from the day of the Lord and that we can stand before you guiltless because of the finished work of Christ. Thank you for what you did in reconciling us to yourself. And would you help us to not neglect the habit of meeting together, but to stir one another up to love and good works as we see the day drawing near. In Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen.